Eleanor Collinson, Senior Researcher at the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to the ACRI podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Tess Newton-Kane, an independent researcher and consultant with over 20 years of experience in governance, policy and political analysis of the Pacific Island region. She is a former lecturer in law at the University of the South Pacific and is a dual citizen of Vanuatu, where she lived 1997 to 2016. Since 2001, she has run her own consultancy business in addition to maintaining a research profile. Her clients have included the governments of Australia, New Zealand and Vanuatu, the Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat, the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank and the UN. During 2017, she worked as a strategic advisor to the Office of the President in Vanuatu. She is also adjunct associate professor to the School of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland and a visiting fellow to the Crawford School at the Australian National University. The Pacific has become more central to the discussion around foreign policy in Australia in the last few years, with clear political bipartisanship on the need to forge closer ties with Pacific nations. Prime Minister Scott Morrison said in November last year that Australia would step up in the Pacific and take its engagement with the region to a new level. Opposition leader Bill Shorten had pledged that a Labor government will put the Pacific front and centre in our regional policy. This has come against the backdrop of increased engagement by China with Pacific nations and concerns about the regional balance of power. Tess Newton-Kane joins us today to discuss the strategic debate with respect to Australia, China and the Pacific, China's ambitions in the region, as well as, importantly, the views of Pacific nations and more. All right, welcome to the program, Tess. Thank you very much, Eleanor. Good to be here. Wonderful. So there seems to be a tendency sometimes, at least in the public sphere, to view the Pacific as a monolithic entity, or at least to talk about it in such terms. Has Australia been able to effectively steer clear of adopting a one-size-fits-all approach with respect to its engagement or its contemporary engagement with Pacific countries? I think it's a work in progress Mm -hmm. for Australia. Um, Over 20 years when I've been working and thinking in this space, I've certainly um, experienced frustration with this idea that one size fits all. Um, And sometimes that's expressed in terms of things like, well, we did this in PNG, so let's just go and do it in Vanuatu or Samoa and, you know, a bit of a cut and paste approach, whether that's around diplomatic engagement or development things. I think very recently people are starting to realise that... um, Pacific Island countries are all different and they've got their own needs, they've got their own, they come with different political histories, they come with different developmental challenges, they come with different demands and needs of their bilateral and regional partners. So I think there is a recognition that that is the case. I think there's also a sense of um, the the community, the strategic and policy community struggling to catch up and recognising that they're lacking a lot of depth and nuance to their understanding of Pacific Island countries, especially in terms of how engagement with Vanuatu needs to be different from engagement with Samoa or even engagement with Papua New Guinea. So I think that that's, it is a work in progress. I think we've seen some indications that that recognition is there, but there's a lot, still a lot of work to do to really build that depth and breadth of knowledge that, that will allow for really quite nuanced conversations with individual countries. Mm. So I think that point you make about um, the strategic debate and the 
the work that needs to be done um, within that realm is very interesting and we'll return to that point later just to flesh it out a little bit more. Um, but in November last year, Prime Minister Scott Morrison in Townsville gave a hefty speech outlining in great detail Australia's Pacific strategy. Now, before we talk about that strategy, um, what has been the major impetus or what are the major driving forces in your view behind Australia's so-called Pacific step-up? Well, much as people like Scott Morrison and Anne Ruston and Maurice Payne are at pains currently to say that it's not about China, um, I think the reality is that even even if it's not all about China now, it certainly started with being about China, even to the point that the media coverage, you know, I was asked to provide some commentary on that speech and around other things. And, you know, essentially I was having, you know, media people say to me, and what about China? You know, sort of that that was the hook that this these that was starting these conversations. So I think there was definitely a sense of needing to respond to some some concern about China. And I think what we've seen, what that speech was part of and what we've seen since is working out exactly how this fits into something that can be called a strategy. I'm not sure that I'm ready to say there is a strategy at the moment. Um, certainly in November, that didn't sound like a strategy. It sounded like um, some fairly sort of meaty knee-jerk reactions. Um, and I think we saw more of that at APEC just not long after that. So whether it's now whether it's now moving into something that looks more like a strategy, I think remains to be seen. Certainly, the sense I get from colleagues in the region is that they don't see this as a strategy or as a particularly cohesive program of engagement, and they there is a, a fair degree of healthy scepticism about what this is. So for all the talk of Vuvale arrangements in Fiji, and you know we're Pacific family, and you've got to step up to show up or show up to step up. Generally, people feel this is all about China or China's what started this. This is about Australia trying to respond to, one, the rise of China, but more, I guess, a realisation that their influence and their presence in the region has been really seriously uh, diminished and depleted. And it wasn't China that did that. China didn't stop Australia being present in the region. Australia chose to take that route over the last however long and now they're trying to um, either regain where they were before or hopefully recognise that it's a changed environment and their positioning may need to be different. So back to Australia's Pacific strategy or well let's call it a strategy in the making. Mm -hmm. um, it was covered at in some detail in the 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper. And then, of course, you had Prime Minister Morrison's Townsville speech where a vast swathe of initiatives were announced um, across the diplomatic, military, financial and people-to-people -people realms. Since the end of last year, you have other initiatives being announced, including the funding of the creation of content to give to broadcasters in the Pacific and sending NRL teams to play official trial fixtures in the Pacific nations. What do you make of this raft of initiatives and how effective do you think they'll be in terms of really forging stronger, deeper ties between Australia and Pacific countries? I think that's a really interesting and a very important question. And to go back to where we started with this one-size-fits-all, I think my um, concern with the NRL strategy is that this is a very good example of thinking, you know, oh, yeah, the Pacific, yeah, just give them NRL. 
you know, simply saying, oh, yeah, just, yeah, sport, NRL, that's it. Go out, give everybody sharks jumpers or signed kangaroos jumpers, and there you go, we've, that, we've done it. We've done the people-to-people links around sport. It's, it, it's, it's not true. It's not based on fact, and it's a little bit condescending. And it, one of the reasons it's condescending is that it would be condescending for us as Pacific Islanders to think that all Australians care about NRL, which we know isn't true. So just this this sort of almost tendency to say, well, you know, we'll just do this one thing and, you know, it doesn't have to be nuanced. We don't have to worry about whether everybody can buy into it. They'll just, you know, everyone will be happy with that. It's not that people aren't happy. Of course people are happy. But it does leave people thinking, well, what about the rest of us? Mm. And also I think the other thing that's missing from this is it's not that there was, and particularly when Scott Morrison was in Vanuatu recently, he was very tone deaf about a message that is loud and clear from the region in pretty much everywhere you go, which is if you want people-to-people links the best thing you can do is make it easier for us as Pacific Islanders to travel to your country. Um, and now he made reference to the seasonal workers program and the Pacific Labour Scheme, but that's not what people are talking about. In Papua New Guinea, people are talking about, well, we want to come and watch the hunters play. We'd like to come to State of Origin, but it takes six weeks to get a visa. Or my my cousins are studying in Brisbane. I'd like to come and visit them for a long weekend. It's only a two and a half hour flight out of Port Vila but it takes six weeks to get a visa and I have to go through these huge administrative hurdles and because I don't have a credit card, then I'm a risk. And so, and people are really, people are very frustrated and increasingly very resentful about this and to simply bat that away with some reference to something that doesn't apply to them is is extremely tone deaf. And I think um, whoever is in the Australian leadership later this year or whatever needs to be ready for the fact that this issue is going to come up again and again and we really need to hear something a bit more meaningful than we've heard so far. So turning to China's engagement or increasing engagement in the region now um, as you mentioned before despite it not being uh, explicitly acknowledged by our senior politicians as the major impetus driving Australia's Pacific pivot the big question uh, that um, policymakers and analysts are grappling now uh, with the underlying motivations behind China's increased engagement with and focus on the Pacific. Why do you think China is getting more involved with this part of the world and what do you think it indicates in terms of their geostrategy and longer-term ambitions? I guess what I can talk about is how I see Pacific Island countries um, dealing with these new relationships and what that means about what the what the manifestations are in terms of how we now see China positioned in in terms of that. So I think one of the thing one of the key things about um, the way China engages in the region is that there is a very strong focus on bilateral relations rather than uh, regional or multilateral relations. So whilst China is a dialogue partner for the Pacific Islands Forum. It, it doesn't see that as the main focus of where it's working. Certainly we see a mu- much more attention in terms of diplomatic attention and in terms of investment um, at the bilateral level. And, you, and we see that reflected in statements made by Pacific Island leaders, most recently Mark Brown in Cook Islands yesterday saying about the strength of the relationship between Cook Islands and China. 
So I think that's one aspect of it that it's really important to bear in mind. Another aspect of it is that um, we ha- we're having a bit of a resurgence, if you like, of the geostrategic competition between China and Taiwan because I think six Pacific Island countries are allies of Taiwan. And so out of the number that Taiwan has, a great a significant number of them are in the Pacific, um, generally quite small states. And we've certainly seen, um, I guess, most recently in Solomon Islands, this sense of, is you know, is Solomon Islands going to shift? Is it going to um, try and have relationships with the People's Republic of China as well as with Taiwan? Or is it going to completely shift and, you know, close down one set of relationships and open a new set of relationships? And then also we've got the, I think the other thing that I've noticed and that um, I commented on in a paper that I wrote late last year called Walking the Talk is that the tone of China's engagement is uh, possibly more culturally resonant than Australia's has been previously. And that involves things like um, a recognition of uh, protocol and procedure at formal events. Um, so, you know, when when Pacific Island prime ministers visit Beijing, they get they literally get the red carpet treatment, uh, honour guards, formal banquets. You know, there's a lot of sort of, there's a fair amount of ceremony and a recognition of status, particularly elite status. And that's quite culturally resonant in countries that still have very strong hierarchical systems, like in Samoa and Tonga, or in Vanuatu, you have chiefly systems where people of people of certain status are accorded certain recognitions that aren't necessarily available to other people. So Chinese diplomats and Chinese the Chinese leadership seems more at ease in accommodating that and um, recognizing it, and I think that plays to a certain um, cultural resonance. Australia does tend to suffer from. Um, well, what I say, one of the things that Australia sees is its strength, which is, you know, we're quite laid back, everyone's equal, lots of backslapping, hi mate, how you're going, um, can often look like bad manners in a Pacific context. And, um, you know, it can, Pacific Island, Pacific Island leaders tend to be very well behaved and polite, but, you know, there is a sense of them saying, why, why, are, they, why are they behaving in this really culturally awkward way so I think that that's another aspect of it that doesn't always get a lot of recognition historically New Zealand's always done very well at this and has got a lot of kudos in the region by being culturally aware and culturally respectful and um, recognizing certain protocols and all of that sort of thing and it still does benefit from that um, but increasingly, China is seeing is is getting the benefit of that as well, just in terms of how people feel about the nature of Chinese engagement. Now, that's not to say that it's not problematized. Certainly, I was in Vanuatu quite recently, and you know, and I certainly I've certainly heard lots and lots of comments about people's concern with the level of Chinese engagement and investment. Um, so there's a concern about the quantum. There's a concern about the quality, particularly around infrastructure projects. And, um, you know, are, can they be maintained? Are they user friendly? Is it good quality? There's a huge concern, a huge concern around the lack of local content in um, Chinese infrastructure projects, both in terms of local procurement and local employment. Um, that is something that, that it comes up every time I have these conversations. 
and it's coming up more and more often and it's being voiced more and more loudly so it's an ongoing it's you know that we're in a constant state of flux i think um just as you can't be monolithic neither can we be static so you know every every deal is different and so we can already see even just in the last five or six years you know differences in the way these engagements are initiated and managed um, from what it was five or six years ago. And I think everybody's learning on all sides of the equation. Mm. Increasing Pacific concern about China's spending um, and the model of spending is reflected, as you know, in Australia and certainly other countries. Um, China's described its overseas aid and investment as being given with no political strings attached. I think President Xi said that um, with respect to a $60 billion package or so uh, to African countries. Uh, But this has been criticised as being rather disingenuous. Others have characterised it as being more fittingly termed as checkbook diplomacy or debt book diplomacy. Uh, Certainly our former Foreign Minister Gareth Evans, um, for example, is quoted in a Harvard report as characterising Laos and Cambodia as wholly owned subsidiaries of China. So how might China's aid and investment into the Pacific be characterised and what might the consequences be should these countries default on debt and what might this mean for Australia? Okay, well, I think think there are several issues there. One is that in terms of overall spend, what comes into the Pacific is very small compared to what China is spending elsewhere, particularly in Africa. So, but the fact, the issue is that because the Pacific, because the Pacific economies are so small, it doesn't take much to make a big impact. So it tends to be very visible. um, And the nature of the work that they do is very visible. If you're going to build a convention centre, you know, everyone's going to see it. If you're going to build a wharf, everyone knows where it is. You know, these are big, very visible projects. Um, So I think that the, uh, to say it comes, nobody's aid comes without a payoff. Like that's not, aid is is a tool of diplomacy. So, Whilst there is certainly um, altruistic elements to giving of aid and development assistance, everyone expects something in return. Um, China has made it clear that it expects uh, recognition of a one-China policy. Um, It's also made it clear that it would value and welcome support of its position on the South China Sea, and Vanuatu has provided that support. So to say, you know, it, it is disingenuous for China to say that they don't have political expectations People, I think people get that. Um, I I think part of the counter-narrative to that has been, well, when we talk to um, other development partners like Australia or the World Bank or New Zealand, um, they want things as well. They want us to... um, They want us to do things like maybe change the way we uh, manage gender equity. They want us to do things that, you know, we hadn't necessarily thought about doing, but they think are important or they want us to put in place governance safeguards that we didn't have before or environmental standards that we didn't have before. And it's not to say that those are necessarily bad things, but certainly um, another sort of rising narrative I've heard is people saying, well, you know, that those Australian aid programs, they're about social engineering. They're about trying to make us into a society we don't necessarily want to be. And I think, you know, it's important to remember that a lot of a lot Pacific Island societies tend to be very socially conservative. 
And so issues, you know, when they see things like um, the marriage equality debate here in Australia, you know, there are elements within those societies that get very concerned about, well, they're going to want us to do that as well, and we don't want to. Now, you know, I'm not going to make a judgment about that. That is just a statement of that is where people are saying that they're at. So in terms of the debt issue, um, Rowan and Matthew at the Development Policy Centre last year brought out a really important piece of work around what the true nature of debt is in the Pacific. And that looked at a number of things, including which countries really were at debt, dis- you know, in danger of debt distress, according to IMF criteria, and also who those people owed money to. Um, and the, the reality is that China is not the biggest source of debt. Um, the ADB is probably bigger than them. So, th- so that's an issue around quantum. But then there's also an issue around the nature of the debt. So I think that, you know, I think everybody recognises that debt is going to be part of the picture. Um, and then so it's about how much debt can should a country take on and what type of debt should they be taking on? And, you know, so then you've got things around, well, what is the rate? How concessional is it? Is it blended grant plus debt? And what's what are the repayment terms? Um, now, there's been a lot of concern about what happens when these countries default. So that presumes they're going to default. Um, Vanuatu has been very much in the spotlight of that as things currently stand. Um, Vanuatu is not going to be defaulting anytime soon. Vanuatu is ahead of schedule for paying down debt. Um, like I say, that may change, and it could change. It could change very soon. It could change very quickly. So, so that so there's, there's the one. Well, you know, do we know that they're going to default on debt? The previous Chinese ambassador to Vanuatu said we would never force Vanuatu to, you know, we would never default on, you know, we would never enforce a, a loan default. Having said that, we then subsequently had. At APEC, China saying that they were going to write off a debt that we didn't know we had. So that we, what we assumed to be a grant 10 years ago was suddenly reconstituted as a debt and then written off. Um, so, you know, th- there's certainly scope for um, interesting things to happen in that space. One of the most interesting things to happen recently is that Australia's decided that despite its concern about the amount of debt that Pacific Island countries have that they want to give them more (laughs) so you know all debt is obviously not created equal but I think going back to a point I made earlier everybody's learning in this so the way China operates is changing the way recipient countries operate is changing the way multilateral organizations operate is changing so the fact that this happened in Sri Lanka x time ago I don't think I think I don't think there's a direct line it means because it happened there five years ago whenever it was it's bound to happen here in five years' time. We can speculate about all sorts of things, but that's really what it is at the moment, is it's speculation. I think in terms of Australia, if Australia's concern is about debt in the Pacific, then Australia has the opportunity, possibly, to offer good advice. To I don't know that Australia necessarily needs to be saying, we'll take our debt because our debt's better than their debt. What Australia could possibly be doing is saying, well, how about we... You know, can we help you set up systems that help you to work out, manage debt better? Mm. You know, you're a sovereign country. You know, what you do is up to you. But if you like, we can help you um, work out policies and procedures that mean as you make those decisions, you, you know, you feel that you're more confident in terms of how you negotiate contracts, how you manage contracts, how you structure your debt, 
you know, what all the options are. Mm. Um, maybe that's maybe that's a, a more useful offering that Australia can make, assuming that anybody wants it. Yeah. Well, you mentioned um, a bit earlier on in our discussion uh, that there was significant scope for improvement in the strategic debate in Australia concerning the Pacific. So this is a point you've made before. Um, You wrote uh, in October last year, I believe, that much of the strategic debate in Australia implies that Pacific states are passive dupes to Chinese influence, unaware of regional geostrategic challenges. How might this particular issue be addressed? How can one inject more nuance into the strategic debate as it stands at the moment? Well, I think the first thing is that there just needs to be a lot more listening um, and real deep listening. And that includes being prepared to listen to people talk about things that you might not be very comfortable hearing. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we want to bag Australia and say mean things about Australia. But certainly it's about recognising that in the Pacific, you know, literally when you step off the plane in any of those Pacific capitals, climate change is a really important conversation and people people are going to want to talk about it. And there's an increasing lack of patience with Australia's position on that. And again, it's it's being it, it gets voiced in various different ways. Another really important conversation is around issues to do with self-determination and sovereignty, um, and particularly in relation to West Papua. So, you know, it's not that we necessarily expect Australia to change its position, but there have just been too many instances of conversations being closed down in forums like the Pacific Islands Forum um, because Australia, and sometimes Australia and New Zealand, and sometimes Australia, New Zealand, PNG and Fiji don't want those conversations. And so other countries feel like, well, we should be able to talk about these things. This is our space. We should be able to use it to talk about things we want to talk about. So I think that really is where it starts and ends is with listening and hearing and being prepared to talk to a wider range of people um, and being and, and talking to people in the region. So yeah, not talking to people that sit in Canberra and think about the region, some of whom go to the region, some of whom don't, but actually getting out there and talking to people that live there and learning, just learning much more about who they are and what they do and what they care about and, and what they worry about and and just recognize, acknowledging, like really meaningfully that, you know, hopefully stopping using terms like our backyard, but saying, you know, this is where Australia is. Like, you know, look around you. This is where you live. You know, be part of be part of what's going on. Be part of the team. Um, you know, I've had conversations with people that say about Australian leadership, and I said to them, well, you know, you've got to get a place on the team before you get to be, to be captain. And in some really significant areas, you know, we're not sure that we want you on the team. So, you know, it's about demonstrating that, I think. Sometimes um, Australian and Chinese engagement in the Pacific region is framed implicitly, framed as strategic competition. Um, However, Foreign Minister Maurice Payne and Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi during a meeting, a bilateral that they had last year in November, discussed trilateral cooperation involving Pacific Island states what scope is there for Australia to work in with China or for China to work in with Australia on providing development assistance to the Pacific? And are there any specific areas of cooperation that both countries might choose to focus on or indeed have already started to focus on? 
So I think this is a really important issue, and I think this. I think we're going to be talking more about this in in the coming years. I think this is going to be where this conversation is going to go to next. And certainly I hope that it is, because I think that's what can be most beneficial. The starting point for this is what are the objectives and needs and goals of any given Pacific Islands country? So what does Vanuatu want? What does Tonga want? What does Fiji want? What have they said? What do their national plans and policies say they want to achieve between now and whenever so that has to be the starting point for everybody you've then you've then got the issue of the fact that china um as a development partner doesn't sit within these other frameworks that other donors sit in so they're not part of the oecd dac um they're not part of the cairns compact under the pacific islands forum so it's about you know how do you you know, how do you establish some common ground? And I think there is potential for the new aid agency in China, which we don't know much about yet. It has a name, and I understand it has a an office with a nameplate on it somewhere in Beijing. But we've yet to see what that agency, is, how it's going to operate. But certainly that would seem to be a, a, an entry point for establishing conversations around cooperation in the development space and uh, that would seem to be where you would look to find points of intersection and points of commonality. In terms of what sectors that might operate in, so there are two projects already going on in the Pacific. One is in uh, Papua New Guinea which is a trilateral China-Australia-Papua New Guinea project around malaria eradication and the other is in Cook Islands, which is a New Zealand-China uh, Cook Islands project around water. Both of them have had not a great deal of publicity. Um, both of them have had challenges and successes. There are particular issues around the one in Cook Islands, around um, Cook Islands government now seeking rectification of early work because it's not of good enough quality. I think there's issues around materials that were used and the engineering isn't up to spec. So that's obviously a challenge. Um, in Papua New Guinea, like I said, I'm, I haven't really been able to get a sense of, of where that's at. But there, there, are lessons, there are obviously lessons to be learned out of these experiences. Um, and there'll be things that have gone well and there'll be things that have gone less well. But there is a, it does mean that there is a platform for going forward. And certainly, um, if these expressions of desire to cooperate are in good faith, we would want to see that going forward. Other areas that may um, come into play are things like, so th there, are a couple, there are a couple that are a bit tricky. So, for example, disaster response in one way should be an obvious area for cooperation, but it does get a bit tricky, largely because HADAR tends to be led by military people, so then we get all the issues about uh, who's got military assets in which area. So that's probably not going to be the first cab off the rank, but there may be something that can be done around transnational crime. Um, you know, China has a, a vested interest in dealing with that because it's a source of the problem and also it wants to deal with the problem. And obviously Australia has has a, a lot of skin in that game. So that may be an opportunity for building on existing collaboration. I mean, Australia and China are already working on this 
area bilaterally so you know they could expand that into working with Pacific partners as well so that may be one opportunity and I think another one will be around um, climate change particularly in terms of adaptation because obviously um, you know China's ability to generate you know usable technology at affordable prices it is already established and so there's, there's scope for that as well and in terms of infrastructure i think there is there, there possibly is scope for um collaboration there with australia maybe bringing things like environmental standards and social safeguards to big projects that uh, with china coming on board in terms of other things like the hard sort of building roads and bridges and stuff because you know that's that's what they're doing and certainly you know i'm not sure that there's any benefit of Australia trying to duplicate Chinese efforts in that space because Australia hasn't done infrastructure in the Pacific for a very long time, if ever, and so doesn't really have the expertise or the runs on the board. So, you know, it seems to me that rather than simply, well, we can, you know, we can build you a bridge, it's like, well, how, you know, how about you all work together on the bridge that we want and bring different things to bear? But it really needs to be about delivering on what people want in the region and recognising that part of the reason that things like um, Chinese projects seem to be so popular is that not only do they develop, not only do they deliver on an economic need or a developmental need, but often they're delivering on a political need, as in they, they, they happen really quickly, whereas World Bank projects and Australian projects and ADB projects they're often not completed within an electoral cycle. So from a political sense point of view, just as with politicians here, you know, if you want to be able to deliver to your constituency before the next election, you've got these people over here that are saying, you know, we can turn you know, we can break ground in six weeks' time and it'll all be done by the end of next year. You've got these people over here that are going to spend two years scoping and may not have even started by the time the next election comes around. You nominated climate change earlier on as one area, one firm area that Australia, China uh, could work in with Pacific Island nations on. Now, climate change is a major concern that is shared by all Pacific nations across the board. Australia itself is signatory to the Pacific Island Forum Bow Declaration, which identifies climate change as the single greatest security challenge facing the region. But does Australia's inaction on climate change reduce its credibility in the eyes of Pacific nations? Well, the short answer to that is yes. So you're quite right. Australia is a signatory to that declaration. And I've certainly noticed recently, um, most I guess most recently was Christopher Pine's speech in Singapore. He talked a lot about security. He talked a lot about security in the Pacific. He made no reference to the Boy Declaration. So it tends to be, when it does get mentioned in Australia, it tends to be, that's you know I, I'm often on social media saying can we all remember that Australia is a signatory to this as well it's not just us you were there too your your signature's on it as well so if we're going to talk about security um, how about we talk about the security thing that we're all involved in so instead of you know stressing about why won't Vanuatu sign a bilateral security treaty with us what about we talk about the security agreement we already have you know it's very new you could tell us more about that but because uh, so. So you, that's one part of the lack of credibility is, 
you're pretending that this agreement we all signed up to doesn't exist. You know, you're not using it to inform what you say about security. You're talking about this other, these other forms of security. And also, increasingly, um, the rhetoric out of Canberra is, well, we, we spend lots, we give you lots of money for adaptation, which is true. Australia's participation, Australia's contribution to adaptation programs and disaster readiness and disaster response is all very significant in the region. But without the commitment to meaningful investment in mitigation, that is increasingly looking very hollow. So it's like, well, it's all very well you're giving us money to build a higher seawall, but how about you just stop digging that coal out of the ground and burning it? So the refusal, and and it's an it appears to be an ideological refusal, the refusal to even have that conversation um, is just, I think, is met with bafflement um, disappointment and increasing increasingly um just impatience to the point where when um Morrison was in Vanuatu the other week you know some people uh criticized our foreign minister for not raising this issue with him having been very vocal on the global stage and the foreign minister's response was what's the point what's the point of talking to him we know he's got nothing to say i'd rather wait and talk to you know, when I'm in Canberra, I'll talk to the Labour people and see what they've got to say. You know, and he was quite sort of blunt about that. He was just, I just didn't want to waste my breath. So, you know, and that, I think that is an unfortunate position to be in. Um, that's not something I would take any pleasure in um, or would anybody else. Other people may not express it in quite those terms, but certainly we've seen Prime Minister Sapoanga from Tuvalu, President Hilda Heine, Dame Meg Taylor, you know, they're increasingly saying, it comes back to this, it's hard for us to think of you as being part of our team if you cannot join this conversation. And not only that, if you then try and shut down the conversation or water down commitments that we want to make because it doesn't fit with your domestic politics. And I guess that's the other issue which um, I'm increasingly aware of. This isn't a foreign policy issue. This is a domestic policy issue. But it's having a really serious impact on what Australia says is the heart of its foreign policy. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you, Tess. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It was lovely to talk to you too. You can subscribe to the ACRI podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or listen to all episodes on our website, australiachinarelations.org. That's australiachinarelations.org. There you will also find more about ACRI's research and events. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACRI underscore UTS and on LinkedIn. Thanks very much for listening.